What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Great to have you with us. Coming up this hour, Moscow murder mystery. Officials searching for suspects after a car bomb takes the life of Daria Dugina, the daughter of a prominent Putin supporter. Russia now blaming Ukraine for the attack. Also today, Somali forces ending a 30-hour siege at a hotel in Mogadishu. At least 21 people killed and some 50 injured. Al-Qaeda-linked group Al-Shabaab claiming responsibility. We'll be live with the latest. But first, a look at the global markets. Looking like a rough start to the trading week with U.S. futures falling. European stocks down sharply. German stocks currently down more than 2 percent. Soaring European energy prices and China's new move to cut mortgage rates. Those are two big issues facing global investors today. China battling not only a sizable property market downturn, but also an ongoing heat wave that's forcing car makers, including Tesla, to cut production. The state of the global economy will be firmly in focus later this week when central bankers gather for the annual Fed summit in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Fed Chair Jay Powell is set to speak on Friday. Investors hope to get a clearer picture of the Fed's future interest rate path. The market's still unclear, though, about how far and how fast the Fed will hike rates over the next few months. We're going to have a closer look at all that in just a moment. But first, Russia is blaming Ukraine for a car bombing that killed the daughter of an influential Russian ideologue. According to state media, Russia's Federal Security Service says the attack on Daria Dugina was prepared by Ukraine's special forces, special services rather, and carried out by a Ukrainian woman. It says she remotely detonated an explosive device on the car driven by Dugina. Authorities said the victim, the daughter of Alexander Dugin, died at the scene near Moscow on Saturday evening. CNN's Fred Plekin is in Moscow with more on this. The Russian security service, the FSB, uh, now blaming Ukraine for the murder of Daria Dugan. I want to read for you just one line from the statement that the FSB put out literally a couple of minutes ago. They said, quote, the murder of journalist Daria Dugana has been solved. It was prepared by the Ukrainian special services by a citizen of Ukraine. They sort of then in their statement go on to detail that a little bit. They name a Ukrainian or allegedly a Ukrainian woman who they say remotely detonated a bomb that was attached to the car of Daria Dugana and claimed that that woman then fled to neighboring Estonia, which I would say is at least about, probably about a 12-hour drive uh, from, from, from here in, in Moscow. They also say that this Ukrainian woman allegedly rented an apartment in the same apartment complex that Dugana lives in as well. Of course, we have to point out that the Ukrainians already yesterday said that they were absolutely not behind all, any of this, that they have nothing to do with all this. But of course, this could have major reverberations, especially with the war going on in Ukraine, with what Russia calls its special military operation. And if you look at the sort of sphere here in Russia, it's really charged up right now. There have already been several senior Russian media figures from Kremlin-controlled media calling for further strikes on Kiev, calling for tougher action against Ukraine. So this could really have a big effect. And right now, the Russians claiming Ukraine is behind it, where, again, the Ukrainians are saying it wasn't them. 
And our thanks to Fred Plekin for that. Meantime, Ukraine is on alert for a potential escalation of Russian attacks this week. President Volodymyr Zelensky says Moscow could do something particularly cruel in the lead up to Wednesday. That's the 31st anniversary of Ukraine's independence, as well as six months since the war began. Several uh, cities have banned public celebrations this week. I want to bring in CNN's David McKenzie. He joins us live now from Kiev. David, good to see you. What more are you learning? Well, Alison, certainly what Fred was describing can only heighten the level of tension here in Kyiv. Uh, there have been several measures put in place in the last uh, several hours by senior leadership, including uh, making sure that there are no large gatherings, no Independence Day gatherings of any uh, substance in the next few days. This is a very significant week here in Ukraine, marking 31 years uh, since uh, Ukraine gained independence from the then Soviet Union, also uh, six months into this brutal war. Outside of here in Kyiv, which hasn't seen any significant strikes for, for many, many weeks, uh, it's been relatively calm and uh, there is a sense of normality here. Now, uh, in the northeast, in Kharkiv, they are in, uh, instituting a 36-hour curfew starting uh, tomorrow evening local time in the lead-up to that independence celebration. Uh, it's even to the extent of here in the capital uh, asking just the minimum amount of uh, municipal workers and officials to be on duty to make sure that the city runs smoothly. So you do get a sense of the tension, at least the worry from officials. President Zelensky over the weekend uh, did also speak about this specifically, a warning that uh, Russia could do something uh, to uh, escalate something cruel and nasty, as he put it. So it is Certainly more tense in Kyiv at the moment, uh, people uh, holding their breath as they await this Independence Day uh, celebration, commemoration, and uh, what might come with it. Yeah, because there's so much uncertainty about what this act could be. I mean, is there a way to even prepare for it? What measures could be put in place? Well, well, Kyiv has, of course, uh, was in the firing line of this conflict in the early weeks and months of this war. So there are substantial measures in place, including uh, measures to, to intercept missiles and uh, other attacks. Uh, so that is not necessarily the main issue here. The main issue is that it has been a period of calm here, and this uh, renewed tension will be worrying to officials and, of course, for the overall scope of this war, uh, should it escalate from where it is right now. All right, David McKenzie, live for us from Kiev. Thanks very much. Renewed recession fears as we gear up for a big week for the markets. A new survey saying 72 percent of economists think the U.S. will be in recession by the middle of next year. If it isn't already, economists and investors will be listening closely to Jerome Powell's speech in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. That's later this week for any clues on how much the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates in the months ahead. I want to bring in Rahel Solomon, who joins us live. Rahel, great to see you. So I went through... Uh, some of the results from this survey. And, you know, it's kind of jumped out at me how much these economists are blaming the Fed for creating this recession in its effort, of course, to get a handle on inflation. Right. Yeah. And looking through the survey, some say that 
monetary policy has just been too lax. And so to your point, they have blamed the Fed. So all eyes will be on Friday when we hear from Jay Powell and, uh, you know, investors in the markets trying to get a sense of might we see another uh, half a percent rate hike? Might we see three quarters? If we were to see another supersized rate hike of three quarters, Allison, three quarters of a percent, that would be the third such rate hike. That said, Chair Powell has been very uh, hesitant, has sort of shied away from giving any level of specificity, certainly about the September meeting, saying, of course, that they will be data dependent. And you could argue that perhaps they still haven't decided. Perhaps they still don't know because we're still going to get an inflation report on Friday. We have another CPI report and another job report uh, before the Fed meets in late September. So all eyes going to be looking for trying to read the tea leaves, as we often do when we hear from Chairman Powell about what's to come. What more, Rahel, did these economists say in this survey? Well, you know, there isn't a ton of specificity. I have the report here. But look, nearly half of the panelists expect a recession by the end of 2022 or the first quarter of 2023. Uh, Not necessarily surprising. That's a lot of what we hear from the big banks. And of course, the reason why is because the Fed doesn't have a great track record of raising rates to fight inflation without triggering a recession. Chairman Powell has pointed to three such periods. Banks, however, have pushed back against two of those periods. Look, whether it's one time that they've been able to do it, whether it's been three times that they've been able to do it, it's very rare, right? So it is not perhaps a surprise to hear economists say that they expect a recession. I think the timing is interesting. I think uh, the magnitude of how many economists are expecting a recession is also very interesting. Uh, I should say that many economists here actually threw their support behind the Inflation Reduction Act. I thought that was interesting. Uh, And in terms of what they think, this was another point that I thought was really interesting, Allison. I'm glad you asked. In terms of what they think would have the biggest impact to lowering inflation, it wasn't actually the Fed. What they said is that they believe that uh, supply chain issues, managing the supply chain would actually have the biggest uh, positive contribution to inflation at this point. Yeah, so many people forget that that is one of the major issues that is, you know, keeping inflation at these historic levels. Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. More U.S. politicians setting foot in Taiwan this week. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb leading the latest group to stage a visit discussing trade and investment. This comes after visits by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and another congressional delegation drew an an angry reaction from Beijing. Blake Essig joins us now with the latest. Blake, so what will this do to the already tense relations between Washington and Beijing? Well, Allison, it's hard to imagine that it won't make tensions worse. Previously, uh, China had blamed the United States for creating a cross-strait crisis uh, across the Taiwan Strait uh, as a result of these visits and eventually uh, halted military and climate talks with the United States as a result of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's stop. Now, another visit, even if it is a lower profile uh, visit in nature, can't possibly help. Now, for the third time this month, a delegation of U.S. officials is visiting Taiwan. The first uh, of them uh, was U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and then the other Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey. Uh, They were focused on reaffirming U.S. support for Taiwan. This current visit led by Indiana Governor uh, Eric Holcomb is all about state-based economic cooperation between Indiana and Taiwan with the specific focus 
on semiconductors. And after arriving on Sunday, uh, today was Holcomb's first full day on the Democratic Island, and he met with Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen, who addressed the media following their meeting to talk about the importance of building sustainable supply chains for semiconductors to counter threats from China. Here's what she had to say. Economic security is an important pillar of national and regional security. Taiwan is willing and able to strengthen cooperation with democratic partners in building sustainable supply chains for democracy chips. While Beijing hasn't officially responded to this most recent uh, visit by U.S. officials, you have to imagine that a response is coming based on what we've seen previously. Of course, every time we've talked about Beijing's reaction to these uh, U.S. uh, delegations visiting Taiwan, along with fiery rhetoric, uh, it was their military response that created headlines. But Beijing's retaliation didn't stop there, immediately deciding to also uh, tighten the economic screws on Taiwan as well. In a small township in the south of Taiwan, farmers like Li Han are battling more than Mother Nature to make a living. But geopolitics? That's something his hard work can't change. It's some kind of political issue between Taiwan and China. We simply want to grow fruits and sell them at a good price. A reasonable request, but one that just got a whole lot more difficult following House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's recent stop in Taiwan. We will not abandon our commitment to Taiwan. China reacted by flexing its military muscle, executing at least six days of live fire drills, while at the same time exerting its economic power over this democratic island. This time going after what some consider low-hanging fruit. Citrus fruit like this pomelo was included on the most recent list of Taiwanese items banned from entering China. Beijing says the reason is because of excess pesticides, accusations that farmers here deny. It's a move that experts say is less about health care or the economy and all about politics. I didn't see the ban coming so fast. We were caught off guard. We all know that politics is behind the bans. This is a politically motivated economic sanction on Taiwan to exert economic pressure on Taiwan. The latest sanctions on fruit and fish went into effect on the same day Speaker Pelosi met with Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen. Sanctions that will cost farmers like Lee a lot of money. And if things don't change, could force him and other farmers to let employees go. It's been hard for farmers. A sudden ban can put everything on hold. The pomelo trees can live for decades, and their fruits get sweeter as the trees get older, so it's impossible for farmers to abandon them. Each year, roughly 72,000 tons of pomelo are produced here in Taiwan. Only about 7% are exported to China, the vast majority being sold and processed here locally in places like this. A small number on paper, but one that will have a big impact on farmers financially and mentally. I think psychology is a bigger factor here, and they can say that they have banned a large number of fruit items from Taiwan in one go. While Pelosi is now gone, the impact of her visit is still being felt, with farmers forced to get creative by transforming the pomelo into something different to make up for that lost revenue. Taiwanese people shouldn't suffer from the tension between the U.S. and China. They always come and then they leave the next day. But the impact is felt here by Taiwanese farmers. It's the collateral damage of world powers going toe-to-toe. Whereas is usually the case, it's not the politicians that suffer, 
but everyday people just looking to pick some fruit and feed their family. Now, Taiwan's agriculture minister estimates that this most recent uh, import ban will result in the loss of tens of millions of dollars for the island. Uh, previously, over roughly the past year, China had also banned other agricultural items uh, that had a bigger financial impact on the island, like Taiwanese pineapples, sugar apples, wax apples, and grouper fish. Now, one item that Beijing hasn't banned and can't produce domestically is semiconductors, Taiwan's most valuable export to China and something China uh, relies on in its technology race against the United States. So, Allison, while China hasn't responded Responded to this latest visit, the fact that it's focused uh, on improving the partnership between the United States and Taiwan around semiconductors probably won't sit well with Beijing. All right, Blake Essig, thanks so much for your reporting. These are the stories making headlines around the world. The U.S. and South Korea kicked off their largest joint military drills in five years following recent weapons tests by North Korea. This is a video of earlier drills back in May. Seoul's defense ministry say today's exercises included thousands of soldiers and that there are response to Pyongyang's growing missile threats. In Somalia's capital Mogadishu, search and recovery operations continue at the scene of what was an upscale hotel. This after Somali security forces ended a 30-hour standoff with the terror group Al-Shabaab on Sunday. At least 21 people were killed. Dozens more were injured. CNN's Larry Madoa joins us now live from Nairobi, Kenya. Larry, what more are you learning about this? We're learning that the Somali prime minister is promising to hold officials accountable for what is turning out to be what they consider a bungled response to this standoff. It took more than 30 hours, partly because, according to many local politicians, that there were so many security units inside that building without a central command. Police have told CNN on Saturday that an elite counterterrorism force was inside there, but it's, we still heard gunfire and some explosions for hours, 24 hours, 26, 28 hours after that standoff began. It all started when gunmen from the Al-Shabaab terror group detonated several explosives outside this hotel in a usually well-guarded part of the city. They made their way into the building and began to shoot at staff and at the guests there. They held some hostages as well. More than 100 people were rescued. More than 100 people were wounded there. And the prime minister has been visiting with those who were wounded and promising accountability and also saying that there should be no repeat of what happened there. This is the first time that the Al-Shabaab terror group has attacked the Somali capital, since the election of President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud, he promised during his campaigns to neutralize the terror group. So this appears to have been a direct message to him and his new administration. The U.S. considers al-Shabaab a major threat, so much so that in May, President Biden authorized a redeployment of U.S. troops back into Somalia. That reversed an earlier decision by President Trump to withdraw all U.S. troops from the country. In recent weeks, U.S. forces have also been carrying out airstrikes against the al-Shabaab. One just uh, this two Sundays ago killed 13 al-Shabaab fighters. But there's still an estimate that it's between five and 10,000 fighters in the country. And one senior U.S. official has described al-Shabaab as al-Qaeda's largest global affiliate. So the threat is not just for Somalia, but for East Africa and the Horn of Africa region because of so many attacks that it's carried out in Somalia, here in Kenya. And there's been some recent reports, Allison, about its work in the Ethiopia-Somalia border. All right, Larry Madowo, thanks so much. Two deputies and a police officer in Arkansas have been taken off duty and are under investigation after a video of a violent arrest was posted on social media. 
The video appears to show the officers punching a suspect in the head and kneeing him in the back several times. That man was eventually taken to jail and has been charged with a number of offenses. Stay with First Move. We've got more to come. I'll see you after this break. For nearly six months, the almost constant bombardment of Ukraine by Russian forces has left the country littered with destroyed buildings as well as unexploded ordnance, which could detonate at any time. The U.S. State Department recently committed almost $90 million to help clear the landmines in Ukraine, calling it one of the worst challenges of its kind in decades. CNN's David McKenzie spent time with a team doing this dangerous work. That's where the, the vast majority of the contamination has gone. For each devastating strike, there's a deadly chain reaction. An item of ordnance struck this building. Any ammunition which didn't detonate on that initial uh, blast has been kicked out. It's been thrown from here uh, and it can travel up to several hundred metres. Ammunition, like this live round, can kill civilians, often children, long after the fighting has stopped. So you'll see before us the, the sort of carnage that's been left by the ammunition trucks, which are previously described detonating. In March, Ukrainian forces struck this farm warehouse, housing tons of Russian shells and rockets. I can only imagine the fireball and the sound that was produced when it happened. For this explosive ordnance disposal team in Cherniv, We don't go in aggressive. Obviously, um, there's a threat out there. The threat is very real. We will continue with the, uh, with the search straightforward. If I say stop at any time, you stop immediately. Advance! We have to be all the way back here for our own safety. It shows how dangerous this work is, and it's painstaking. This small area has taken several days, and you're not even finished. No, we've merely scratched the surface. And you've got an entire country, potentially. Yeah. How do you possibly do that job? If me doing this job uh, and being here in Ukraine, removing one item, however small or however large it is, saves one life, then for me personally, that's a goal that I have reached. Stop. Stop. Okay. Stop. When they spot a suspected shell, everyone come back. Team leader John Aldridge must go it alone. Using only his fingertips. John works very, very carefully. These shells are designed to destroy defensive positions. If armed, even the slightest nudge could set it off. What is it like when you're there scrabbling through, not knowing what exactly you're going to find? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think it's something that you get used to after time, but there's still that element um, of, you know, sort of adrenaline kicking in a little bit, yeah. And uh, a few beads of sweat. <laughs> This shell can be moved safely. Great. Soon they'll have Ukrainian team leaders clearing their own land. Mm, this will be an enormous task, says Natalia, since all this must be done carefully. You just can't rush this job. Nice and steady, yeah? Even if this war stopped today, it could take years for her country to be safe. David McKenzie, CNN, Cherniv, Ukraine.
In Spain, the effects of climate change have uncovered a prehistoric site containing dozens of upright stones arranged in circles. Despite the country's worst drought in decades, researchers now have the perfect opportunity to take a closer look. CNN's Isa Suarez has more on the Spanish Stonehenge. Emerging from the receding waters of a reservoir in west-central Spain, a prehistoric stone circle now fully exposed as the region battles one of its worst droughts in decades. The current situation with the heat waves and drought is very sad for all of us. But in this case, it does offer archaeologists a unique chance to be able to study, again, a site that had not been thoroughly studied before. Since it was first discovered by a German archaeologist in 1926, the Dolmen of Guadalperal, as it's officially known, has become fully visible only four times. Believed to date back to 5000 BC, it is one of several dolmens, or vertically arranged stone formations, that exist across Western Europe. How such heavy boulders were moved and erected thousands of years ago is still largely a mystery. We believe the Dolmen of Guadalperal is a collective tomb. Burials took place in it for more than 2,000 years. So everything that was found there when it was first discovered are remains of items that accompanied the dead. The emergence of what's been dubbed the Spanish Stonehenge is the rare benefit of little rain and blistering temperatures, while many suffer in the extreme heat. We have not had enough rain since spring, so the ponds run out of water, and there isn't enough for the livestock, and we have to go get water and bring it here. But this is just unsustainable. Most orchards have not grown this year. All the peppers have dried up. Crops have been devastated because of the heat, and the cattle have hardly any water to drink. A study published in the Nature Geoscience Journal last month found that due to climate change, parts of Spain and Portugal are the driest they have been in more than a thousand years. Conditions revealing a prehistoric landmark as they wreak havoc on a region in an increasingly warming world. Isa Suarez, CNN. Coming up on First Move, the Inflation Reduction Act touts new investments to help lower energy bills for Americans. But is it enough? I'll be talking with the CEO of the biggest oil and gas trade group next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks beginning the week with across-the-board losses as investors brace for a busy week of economic data, including a fresh read on the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, plus an updated look at U.S. second-quarter GDP. Fed Chair Jerome Powell delivers a closely-watched speech on U.S. monetary policy on Friday as well. U.S. stocks posted their first weekly loss in over a month last week. Stock weakness today hitting many of the so-called meme stocks that have enjoyed strong bounces this summer. Theater chain AMC seeing its stock plunging more than 30 percent as a new class of shares make their market debut. Bed Bath & Beyond shares, they are falling again as well. They plunged more than 40 percent on Friday after investor Ryan Cohen sold his almost 10 percent stake in the firm. I want to bring in Paul LaMonica. He joins us with more details. So, Paul, I do see this broader risk-off move in the stock market, you know, the red arrows. But there's also this meme stock meltdown, especially with AMC shares plummeting. What is driving this latest move? 
Yeah, I think, Allison, what's going on, there's a combination of factors. You mentioned Bed Bath & Beyond and the plunge there. And even though AMC and Bed Bath & Beyond aren't related companies, they're lumped together in this whole meme stock phenomenon. But with AMC, you've got a couple of other issues right now that are troubling for them, most notably Cineworld, the UK-based movie theater chain that owns Regal in the United States, is reportedly getting set to file for bankruptcy. Then there have been a lot of worries, Allison, about the fact that many people are only going to movie theaters for those true blockbuster films, and they're staying home and watching a lot of TV on streaming services instead. And that is hurting the economics of the movie theater business. It's why you see AMC is still losing money. You have Cinemark, another big movie theater chain. IMAX, they are getting hit hard today, their stock as well. So I think investors are worried about that. And then there's that whole new preferred equity ape stock that is trading as well. That might dilute the existing shares of um, you know AMC investors right now that could be also leading to this uh, stock price drop today. Sticking with the movie theater theme here, um, you know, is it a, la- a lack of blockbusters? I mean, we had Top Gun and there was um, Minions. I mean, but theater owners are really wrestling with how to come back from the pandemic, aren't they? I mean, is it Hollywood that's not you know offering up the blockbusters, or I mean, and, and what is what is the future for movie theaters as we know them? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that movie theaters still have a hopefully bright future. They are not going away. People do love to go see those true blockbuster phenomenon movies like a Top Gun because of the fact that it was Tom Cruise reprising his role from many decades ago. Minions, a very popular kids movie, and we all know animated movies tend to do well bringing the families. But I think, Allison, the problem is that a lot of studios, they're just producing the same old derivative content, and that might be turning off moviegoers. And then also, you still have a lot of options to stream things on Disney+, Plus, on our parent company's owned HBO Max, on Netflix. There are so many options out there right now for entertainment, and I think that is something that is a problem for movie theaters. Yeah, like the prequel to Game of Thrones, for example. All right, Paula Monica, thanks so much. Americans are finally starting to feel less pressure at the gas pump. The national average for regular gasoline is down very slightly to $3.90 a gallon. That's a dollar two below the record set in mid-June. Gas prices have been on a steady decline since President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law last week. The bill promises new investments to help lower energy costs for millions of Americans. But the American Petroleum Institute says it falls short of addressing America's long-term energy needs and discourages needed investment in oil and gas. Joining us now is Mike Summers. He's the president and CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. Thanks so much for your time. Great to be with you, Allison. Let's start with the Inflation Reduction Act. I know you've got some major issues with this legislation. In fact, you sent a letter with others uh, to congressional leaders talking about how problematic this legislation is. Give us the cliff notes of what the issues are. 
Well, first of all, Allison, there are a number of key components of this bill that we support. In fact, it's plans uh, to open up new uh, drilling activity in the Gulf of Mexico and in Alaska. Uh, we're for that. It also has key investments in carbon capture, utilization and storage technology uh, that we want to make sure that we're able to do during this time of, of concerns about climate. We're for those provisions at the same time. There are increased taxes on American oil and gas producers. There's a new natural gas tax, which is particularly concerning during a time of a record high for electricity prices. And then in addition to that, there's a new tax on oil for incoming oil into the United States. We don't think that those are wise components uh, for an energy bill, uh, particularly one that uh, seeks to tame inflation. Well, we are seeing prices at the gas pump here in the United States come down below $4 a gallon. Talk us through what caused that drop. Was it President Biden's efforts like release of oil from the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? Was it that big emergency meeting he had with CEOs threatening to pull unused drilling permits? Did any of that stuff make an impact? What's the real reason we're seeing gas prices drop here in the U.S.? Well, there are a lot of components that go into gas prices, of course. I worry, however, that, of course, while you put more uh, oil on the market through the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, uh, unfortunately, when you do that kind of thing, eventually uh, you start running out of those reserves. And uh, in the fall time frame, we expect that those purchases are going to cease. At the same time, uh, we're likely to see uh, the new sanctions on Russia go into effect in Europe. And then if COVID pressures ease in China, you could potentially start to see uh, some more pressure on, on oil prices, which could lead to uh, increased prices at the pump. The real need that we have here in the United States is to increase production. We need to increase production here in the United States, which is going to continue to allow consumers to see these benefits at the pump. But that requires... Uh, increased uh, regulatory certainty for the American oil and gas industry, which we do not have right now. Uh, production continues to raise in the United States, but at the same time, we have an administration that has continued to put uh, pressure on this industry, both from an economic perspective and from a regulatory perspective. And uh, if we need, we're going to continue to advance American energy security and ease prices at the pump, we need certainty, not just for this year, but for decades and decades into the future. Critics say that production can be ramped up. It's just that oil producers are choosing not to uh, let this happen at a faster pace. What do you say to that? Well, this industry is dealing with the same issues that the rest of the economy is dealing with. Uh, we have supply chain issues, particularly when it comes to steel, which is an important component to drilling activity here in the United States. In addition to that, we have workforce challenges. Uh, we're dealing with the same issues that other industries are dealing with in terms of getting qualified workers uh, to produce here in the American oil industry. So uh, those issues are real constraints and, and ones that uh, we need to relieve if we're going to increase production here uh, at home in the United States. The American Petroleum Institute released a report of what policymakers can advance today to what you call unlock American energy, fuel, economic recovery, and strengthen national security. What's in this plan? So we actually have a plan. You can find it at uh, 10in22.com. Uh, this is a new plan that we released before uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. And it's 10 policies, 10 common sense policies that lawmakers can advance to ensure security for American energy while at the same time reducing prices for Americans. It includes 
uh, permitting reform, uh, for example, which was not included in the Inflation Reduction Act. It includes that regulatory certainty that I was talking about earlier. It also includes uh, developing more lands for uh, producers to produce here in the United States. So your viewers can uh, find more about it at 10in22.com. Uh, we're really proud of this plan, and it provides a roadmap for lawmakers uh, to really focus on American energy security at a time when we need it most. How much do you see U.S. oil producers stepping up to export oil to uh, the European Union as uh, its dependence on Russian oil abates, um, we hope? Yeah, so we need uh, to do two things. Of course, we need to produce more so that we can export more to our allies in Europe. At the same time, uh, we need to focus on uh, the production and the export of American natural gas. We have uh, centuries and centuries of, uh, of natural gas here in the United States that we can export to Europe to replace the Russian gas that uh, is being cut off by uh, Vladimir Putin. So we can be that energy supplier, that safe energy supplier that the world needs uh, during this time of energy crisis. But we need regulatory certainty and we need uh, certainty, particularly when it comes to the development of these resources here at home. Uh, we're ready to do it. Uh, we and we want to work with the Biden administration to do it now, uh, but that's going to require a long toward long term commitment to uh, American oil and natural gas. All right. Mike Summers, president and CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you, Allison. Still to come, Virgin Voyages says it's back on course post-pandemic thanks to new funding and a new ship on the horizon. The CEO of this adults-only adventure coming up next. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. The cruise industry has been battered by COVID-19, but Virgin Voyages says calmer seas have returned with a rebound in demand for adults-only trips. Virgin Voyages runs a no-kids policy on its two ships, which run in the Caribbean and the Mediterranean. More good news is on the horizon. It's just secured $550 million to drive more growth. I want to bring in Tom McAlpern. He is the CEO. Great to have you with us. Good morning, Allison. Thanks for having me. All right. So in July, uh, Virgin Voyages became the first major cruise line to do away with pre-COVID testing before sailing in the U.S., though you are still requiring 90 percent of passengers and all of the crew, actually, to be vaccinated. I'm curious how the cruise demand has been going since these uh, COVID rules have been lifted. And have there been any COVID outbreaks on board your ships? Well, we have seen incredible growth since we launched for bookings. Um, that has even improved over the past couple of months. So we're seeing real a lot of pent-up demand. People want to get out there. They're happy that we don't have these restrictions for testing, and we've lowered the requirements for vaccination. So people are very happy about that. And we, you know, still have all of our protocols on board to take care of our folks, make sure that they are safe and secure. That's always our number one priority, and we've done that. And people have thousands and thousands of people have sailed safely on board our ship. So we're excited. Have there been any COVID outbreaks on your ships we, since then? We are, have not had any COVID outbreaks on our ship. There's a lot of protocols that we do in place. In fact, they are just beaming with satisfaction. You know, we, we have more five-star ratings on Cruise Critic than any other ship. So people are having a fantastic time. They're enjoying not wearing masks. They're enjoying getting back and celebrating life again and traveling. Resilient Lady, that is your third ship, and it was scheduled to sail its maiden cruise from Athens this month. Why is that being delayed? 
so you know like uh, other industries uh, we, we've had challenges with supply chain issues we've had problems with crew and having a a war going on in uh, uh in europe hasn't helped but uh, we're th seeing things rebound now we will launch that ship in uh, in uh, may of next year it's the right thing to do. Think about it. We are launching a brand. We are not just launching one ship. So we need to do it at the right pace. And this makes sense for us. Are Scarlet Lady and Valiant Lady, your other two ships, are they being impacted by uh, by these similar challenges, you know, um, hiring new workers, supply chain challenges? No, they're not. And that's one of the reasons why we decided to, to postpone uh, Resilient Lady so that we can mm -hmm. continue to provide that amazing experience for our sailors on board. They love the fact that we've got six specialty restaurants. They go to different restaurants each night. Incredible entertainment. Of course, as you said, it's an adult-only experience. And they get to go to our, our private beach club in Bimini, which is a, an amazing experience for them. So they're having a great time. Last week, as an example, 35% of the people that were on board the ship booked another cruise before they got off the ship. Virgin Voyages has secured $550 million in funding from BlackRock. How are you going to use that in your growth strategy exactly? Well, it's a combination of funding from our existing shareholders, uh, which include the Virgin Group uh, and Bain Capital, as well as BlackRock. And this allows us to continue to grow the brand, continue to launch successfully, and to take delivery of our two new ships, uh, Resilient Lady and Brilliant Lady, which will take delivery at the end of 2023. So you have a new twist on Godmother for Virgin Voyages. You've got a new title for this person, the Chief Entertainment Lifestyle Officer and a cute way of introducing her in this promo with Sir Richard Branson. I want to play a piece of it. Stand by. Virgin Voyages. Yeah, I'm really excited too, but I was thinking that maybe before we announce it, that we should decide on my official title at Virgin Voyages. Yes, and I already have a few options for you. For those okay. who are living under a rock, that is JLo, Jennifer Lopez. Why uh, did you choose to, her as, um, you know, in this role for Virgin Voyages? Well, think of Jennifer as uh, the godmother of our fleet. I mean, she has incredible awareness. She loves the experience. And she'll do more than just be the godmother. She'll be the chief uh, entertainment and lifestyle officer. So providing insight for us, helping us to further curate the, the, the brand and the experience on board. We'll have her beauty products on board the ship. So it's a great partnership. She is in this for the long haul to make sure that, that uh, Virgin Voyages continues to be successful. Any chance she'll make, she'll make a cameo and perform on one of your ships? You know, you never know. She's had some other priorities, as you might expect, <laughs> if you've heard over the last couple yeah, of weeks. But uh, expecting her on board on board the ship and making some, some grand appearances in the very near future. So fingers crossed um, we'll be seeing more from her. Before we go, I have to ask you about uh, Virgin Voyage's Valiant Lady, who made a splash on The Bachelorette. The show was filmed uh, on the ship during a Mediterranean cruise. Have you seen your bookings jump because of this? We have seen in, incredible spikes in activity of people going to our website and shopping. So it has worked very well. We've had a spot that we, we aired on the last episode. So we're happy about that relationship. I think there's more to come, you know, as we continue to, to leverage that. But it was the right thing to do. We got incredible awareness and people understanding and seeing how beautiful our ships are, what the experience could look like. And again, when people come on board the ship, they just want to come back time and time again. So we're excited about the incredible high satisfaction levels. And this kind of gives us a way to showcase a little bit of that. Well, the ships certainly look beautiful from here. Tom McAlpin, president and CEO of Virgin Voyages. Thanks so much. Thank you.
And J-Lo is celebrating more than just being Virgin Voyage's chief entertainment lifestyle officer. The singer and husband, Ben Affleck, tied the knot again over the weekend, this time surrounded by family, friends, and fellow celebs in Georgia. The couple said, I do, the first time last month in Las Vegas. From the Hollywood stars to NASA's new mission to the moon, the U.S. space agency taking one small step to put Americans back on the lunar surface for the first time since 1972. Stay with us. For the first time in 50 years, NASA plans to send humans back to the moon. A first step toward that goal takes place later this month with the launch of an unmanned rocket and the beginning of the Artemis program. CNN's Christina McFarlane reports. A megamoon rocket on a slow 6.4-kilometer ride aboard a giant NASA crawler before reaching its launch pad this week. One of the final steps before the unmanned Artemis One begins a mission set to journey farther than any spacecraft built for humans before. It is the first time in about half a century that a NASA-built rocket is set for a lunar-bound liftoff. On August 29th, the Artemis One mission is set to begin a 42-day journey that travels around the moon before returning to Earth. Sitting atop its rocket is NASA's Orion astronaut capsule. Designed to separate from the rocket in space, it carries 54 kilograms of cargo, including a Commander Moonakin a suited mannequin that can collect data on what a human crew might experience. Two other phantoms, Helga and Zohar, will be aboard, made of material that mimics the soft tissue organs and bones of a woman. This time the mission is unmanned, but the launch of the most powerful rocket ever built kicks off a more ambitious plan. This is the start of NASA's Artemis program, which aims to land the first woman and first person of colour on the lunar surface by 2025, eventually build a lunar base and make way for further exploration to Mars and maybe even beyond. Christina McFarlane, CNN. How much would you pay for one of the coolest and most iconic cars ever seen in a movie? Don't know what I'm talking about? Watch this. You'll be using this Aston Martin DB5 with modifications. Now, pay attention, please. Windscreen bulletproof, as are the side and the rear windows. Revolving number plates. Next. Yes, that's Bond, James Bond, in the movie Goldfinger. And that's his 1964 Aston Martin DB5 tricked out with the 007 guns, gadgets, and ejector seat. Actor Sean Connery loved that car so much, he bought one just like it. And he owned it until he died. That Aston Martin recently sold at auction for, get this, $2.4 million for this car. The buyer remains anonymous, but whoever you are, whoever it is, I hope you are celebrating right now with a martini. Of course, parked on the side of the road, not driving with the martini. That's it for the show. I'm Alison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Alison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.